This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Good morning. Welcome. It is the Glenn Beck Program. My name is Mike Broomhead. Phoenix, Arizona. Day two in for Glenn. My second and final day. Thanks for making the Glenn Beck Program a part of your day, wherever you're listening to us. Social media interaction, once again, huge response yesterday on social media. Hope to get more today. It's going to be a big day on the show, of course. The big story of the day is John Kerry's rebuke of Israel. The fact that uh, Israel continues to say they have solid proof that the U.S. was behind this U.N. resolution. And now they've put it out there. John Kerry's made some admissions in that regard. And for him to rebuke Israel in the way he has, it's more than just what he said yesterday. There is a history here that we're going to talk about that part of the world and not just in the Middle East, not just in that part of the world, but U.S. policies under this president overall over the last eight years and how they're all culminating right now. It is all coming to an end for them. They have nothing to lose. This president is going to leave, trying to leave some indelible marks, not just in foreign policy, not just when it comes to Israel and the Middle East and the Palestinians or the Iranians, but how about the Cubans? We'll talk about that relationship. What John Kerry had to say about the death of Fidel Castro, a communist evil dictator that oppressed his people for decades. What they said about the nuclear deal with the Iranians and the neighboring states that are supposed to be allies to the U.S. and what we said to them in, the, in, in retrospect after that deal was cut. And then it leads up to what's now happened with a U.N. resolution that the U.S. was behind, that they denied, but now can no longer deny they were behind this. They have said that they didn't write it, that they didn't introduce it. That doesn't mean they weren't behind it and didn't have anything to do with it. So that's going to be a big part of the first hour of the program. Hour number two, we will talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. As I said, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, the western United States, and the huge swath of land that is controlled by the federal government. Well, the president, much to the dismay and anger of people in Utah and other parts of the western United States, declaring millions of acres, federally protected land, all in the idea of his EPA regulation and overregulation. Well, so if you'll bear with me in hour number two, why this is important no matter where you are in this country, but why especially in the Western United States, these policies are so important. It's not just about protecting land for future generations. There is a lot more to this ideology than meets the eye. It sounds like a topic that on the list of things that there are to be concerned about in our world, 
that this would not be something that is high on the list. But I can promise you, I promise you, it should be very high on the list of things. And it's something we'll talk about in hour number two. Also, ISIS is calling for New Year's Eve attacks here in the U.S. using horrific images. I mean just despicable images of Santa Claus and blood and Christmas trees and rifles and overt threats to America New Year's Eve. What are we going to do as a nation with the big parties that will be going on in New York City and other major cities across the country, including one of them that I'm in and probably where you are as well? If there is going to be plans, the government working overtime trying to keep people protected. So we will discuss all of this this morning on the show. And in the 9 o'clock hour, as we did yesterday, we will focus a little bit on the economy, what we're seeing now, the, uh, the president-elect announced that Sprint is going to keep 5,000 jobs or bring 5,000 jobs back to the U.S. We're starting to see the wheels turn of what the, the president-elect wants to do in, in business. Now, I have been hopefully optimistic in regards to the economy. When it came time for the election during the primary process and then the general election, any dismay I had and any disagreement I had was more about presentation than policy. But I will say the strong suit for a Trump administration is going to be economic, and the country votes largely with their wallet. That isn't the end-all, be-all. There is a moral compass we must adhere to and abide by as well. There are limitations to what presidential power should be. I won't, I'm making a commitment to my listeners here in Arizona, but to everybody. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Right is right and wrong is wrong. If Donald Trump abuses, uh, abuses executive power, the way Barack Obama did, even if I agree with what he's accomplishing, you've got to include Congress, especially when you have a Republican Congress. There's negotiation that is there to be had. There's no doubt about any of that. When you look at what's going on right now, the country's yesterday was a big part of the show. We talked about or I I talked about how consumer confidence is at a 15 year high. Well, of course, it's at a 15-year high. It's at a 15-year high because the American people are starting to see the wheels turn in the other direction. I talked at great length yesterday about class warfare. America doesn't believe in class warfare largely. We don't. We look at people sometimes that have a huge amount of money, and we think, how do those people become rich? They don't seem smart enough to be that wealthy. Or maybe we feel like they got lucky. They were born into a family. It was it, They hit the genetic lottery. And so they've been born into a very wealthy family. And, you know, all that being said, people aren't worried about what other people have. We're, we are worried more, and I love this about America, we are a lot more worried about what people don't have. And I think that's really something truly American. In the middle of this time of year, When we take inventory, you think about leading up to Christmas. Think about the gifts you buy for your loved ones, for your kids, for family members. You look under the Christmas tree at what you were able to provide for your children, let's say, or grandchildren. And we take inventory and we think, you know, we complain a lot throughout the year. We all I have a great job. I love what I do for a living now. I love the industry I'm in. You know how often I complain about my job? Pretty often. You know how often I feel like an idiot for it? All the time, all the time. But this time of year, we take inventory of the blessings we have. And as a country, as it by and large, it's there's no hard and fast rule. But by and large, this is the time of year we take inventory and are thankful 
when we look at the year we've had and the abundance we have and the complaints we make, we largely as a country think more about what other people don't have than worrying about what others do. I think that is a, a, a not necessarily uniquely American, but it is definitely an American way to think. Isn't it odd that we see people around us who have less than we do giving more than we give sometimes? We're motivated and inspired by people that have less than us that do more. That's an I believe that's an American sentiment and an American principle as opposed to the other way around, which is what we've been dealing with once again for the last eight years, which is the have-nots shaking their fist at the haves and saying, we're going to get you, and they just can't. So in the 9 o'clock hour, we'll talk about jobs coming back. Russians are threatening revenge, another headline that now that the president, this current president, Obama, is now talking about the sanctions that will be imposed, whether it's economic or political, against the Russians for uh, influence peddling or election meddling or whatever you want to call what they're calling it. The Russians are saying, well, they're not going to stand for it, that they have got their own retribution plan. They will seek their own kind of revenge. It's not going to be military. They don't have that kind of strength against us, but they will do something in the world, in the region. And we'll see economically what they're able to do. And last headline, Dylan Roof, who was the the kid that, and I say kid, the young man who shot up a church in South Carolina that walked into a Bible study, sat down with people in a time of prayer and worship and study for an hour and was accepted into a room full of people and actually socialized with them and then pulled out a gun and just committed a heinous act of murder. He's not going to call any witnesses in the sentencing phase, I guess, for him. He's not going to try to spare his own life. The guy was representing himself in court. We all realize in order for you to have that kind of a a killing spree in you to do that, to be that detached from any emotion, there's more going on in the in the mental state of this guy. So that's also something we'll talk about later in the show. But we've got to at least in this first hour, the big story of the day was John Kerry's speech yesterday, his rebuke of Israel, his rebuke of them being a nation state that they can either be Jewish or they can be diplomatic, but they cannot or, or democratic. They can't be both. And then the social media fallout, the worldwide fallout, people here in the states, uh, people, big names in government and private citizens speaking out about that very thing. So that's the big topic this hour, especially when we compare it to some of the other things that he has done. So that's where we're going, and that's the direction we're going to be. Social media users, when we get back, I'll give you ways you can reach out to me and speak to me via social media. If you jumped on board yesterday, I appreciate it. I hope you'll stay in touch this morning. My name is Mike Broomhead, and this is the Glenn Beck Program. The Glenn Beck Program. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. 
888-727-BECK. This is the Glenn Beck Program. So John Kerry speaks out and rebukes Israel, calling the settlements in the West Bank a threat to peace, or the Israeli settlements a threat to peace. How interesting, how fascinating is this, that John Kerry is talking about Israel being a threat to peace at all? I I, I want to, I am so tempted to jump ahead to the way I've got this planned. I want to speak specifically about this before I jump in any other direction Because there is so much happening with what John Kerry did yesterday. And remember, be very clear about this. What John Kerry is doing is carrying out the policies of the president of the United States, as he should. You are the secretary of state. You are the chief diplomat for the United States. But you work at the pleasure of the president of the United States. You are out there. And because we've elected him president, he sets the policy. Therefore, he appoints a secretary of state and sends him or her out to do the bidding of the U.S., to do the diplomatic uh, job and be the diplomatic liaison for the American people. So it's very easy for me to jump into the second part of this right away. To me, it's low-hanging fruit, but we will get to why it's even worse than it appears with what John Kerry did yesterday. Um. The status quo is leading toward one state and perpetual occupation, is what John Kerry said. His speech was a powerful admonition after years of tension and frustration with the Obama administration giving public voice to its long-held concern that Israel was headed off a cliff toward international isolation and was condemning itself to a future of low-level perpetual warfare with the Palestinians. Let us just talk for just a minute about the Palestinian aggression against Israel. Those tunnels that are dug to get into Israel, they're not dug by the Israelis. The Israelis are not digging tunnels to get to the Palestinians. The Palestinians fire at, lob bombs into, use artillery from neighborhoods. The Israelis know that these are filled with citizens, not soldiers. So when they fire back, they're firing into neighborhoods. They're blamed for defending themselves, not the Palestinians for setting up and using civilians as cover. I mean, just on its face, It's a ridiculous conversation. Absolutely ridiculous. But John Kerry saying that settlements are a threat to peace is about the most hypocritical thing he has done or said as Secretary of State. He's made some mistakes and he's the policies of the United States when it comes to foreign policy have been almost completely 180 degrees wrong. We continue to hear about what a great job is being done diplomatically and militarily against ISIS. A, there was no ISIS eight years ago. This is the administration that called ISIS the JV squad. Remember the history of all of this. 
don't buy into what's being said today and how it's being compared to what they said yesterday. Compare it to what they've said for the past eight years. Before President Obama was President Obama, when talking about the United States military and talking about the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan, he said, we have to do more than killing civilians and air raiding villages. That was his opinion of the United States military, that the United States military was not going, and the coalition, of course, but he was talking specifically about our military, that he was under the assumption and the belief that the American military was, if not targeting civilians or just indiscriminately air raiding villages, that we had absolutely no concern for loss of innocent lives and we weren't risking the lives of the American military to spare the lives of civilians. Anybody out there who has been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, especially those places, since Bush 41 was in power in the original Iraq war, you know that's a slap in your face. I don't care if you're a registered Democrat and vote Democrat. That kind of a statement is a slap in your face. The president was warned whether he thought we should have gone into Iraq or not. You cannot pull troops out. You will create a vacuum that will be filled by evil. He did it anyway for political reasons because he made political promises. He created that vacuum and the uprising of ISIS happened. And at one time, the Islamic State controlled the entire border between Syria and Iraq. Big chunks of northern Iraq, oil, money, banks. They destroyed um, religious relics of every other faith but their own. These are the people that will murder somebody for either drawing a picture of the Prophet Muhammad or burning a Koran or, or desecrating or disrespecting the Koran. They'll murder you. Destroyed religious relics of faiths that were not their own. Murdered people in the streets. A gang of thugs. Now we're hearing about progress against that organization when we as a people, because of the policies of this president, are responsible for its uprising. And now John Kerry makes his final speech in the Middle East with a rebuke against Israel. And now the Israelis know. John Kerry admits that the U.S. coordinated with the U.N. Security Council on the Israeli settlement resolution. Kerry stated that the administration strongly rejected the notion that somehow the United States was the driving force behind the resolution. However, he also pointed out that they were aware as, um, as was Israel that Egypt and the Palestinians intended to bring a resolution to a vote at the end of the year. The United States did not draft the origin or originate the resolution, he said, nor did we put it forward. It was drafted by Egypt. But he also admitted they knew all about it. Behind the scenes, they were a part of coordinating it. This is the final step. This is the legacy of this administration. This is the legacy of this Secretary of State. Now part two of this. We know what he did yesterday with Israel. Now let's look what he's been doing in the region over the last couple of years and around the country. I mean, around the world. 
the deal with the Iranians, how they stated what they did about the death of of, of uh, Fidel Castro, the evil dictator, and the policies of this administration. It's part two of this story this hour. I am at Broomhead Show on Twitter. Not Mike Broomhead. I'm at Broomhead Show on Twitter. I am Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram or the Mike Broomhead Show fan page on Facebook. That's how you can reach me. I hope social media users will reach out this morning. Look forward to talking with you. Back in a moment with part two of this story. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mike Broomhead, Phoenix, Arizona, in for Glenn. My final day in for him. Thanks for making the show a part of your day, wherever and however you're listening to it. We do appreciate it. Um, Let me talk about, let me expand a little bit on my dismay at what the United States is doing. And for anybody out there that is a John Kerry, Barack Obama supporter, uh, you obviously a right to your opinions. But you do know that what they've done in the last week with this U.N. resolution and with what they are saying as a policy of the United States about about Israeli settlements is a complete reversal of U.S. policy and opinion for decades. I mean, Carter had this kind of an opinion of the Palestinians. If you remember, Jimmy Carter brought Yasser Arafat to the White House as the, and gave him the same credibility he gave the Israeli prime minister. And he was the head of the PLO, a terrorist organization. Not since then has there been this kind of shift in U.S. policy officially toward Israel. I mean, it is something worth noting and talking about, even if you agree with it. But let's look deeper for just a minute. Not only, and for whatever reason yesterday I went through a lot of this, and I'm not going to do it again, just in the interest of time, During the Iran nuclear deal and negotiation, two things were happening. One, the Iranians were flexing their muscle and their disdain for America, from their religious leader, the Ayatollah, to their military leaders and generals, to their governmental leaders and voting. They unanimously were chanting, literally, not figuratively, literally chanting death to America. While the chief diplomat of the United States sat down with them and continued to negotiate a deal. Part two of that is all of our allies in the region, all of our allies in that region begged us not to do it. Told us, told us, told our government, told John Kerry, told Barack Obama, do not cut a nuclear deal with the Iranians. We shipped them billions of dollars in cash. The story is so well chronicled. 
Most of you know the history of that money, but for those of you that aren't quite sure of the history, I'll give it to you. When the Shah of Iran was in power, the Shah of Iran cut a deal with the U.S. for weapons, and we were going to sell weapons to the, Iranian, to the Iranian people because the Shah of Iran was an ally with the United States. And I believe at the time it was $400 million. Well, the Shah was deposed. He was overthrown by these religious zealots and the Ayatollahs took over. They took American hostages for over a year. And then Ronald Reagan became president. And inauguration day, they released the hostages. But the American government never dealt with them because we never saw them as a legitimate government. They overthrew the Shah of Iran and we didn't recognize them really as an official government. We weren't going to give them back their $400 million because it wasn't their $400 million. It was the Iranian people, but not that government that was in power. So we didn't give them back their money. All these years later, Barack Obama decides we're not only going to give the Iranians back the original $400 million, we're going to give them the compounded interest on that money over all these years to the tune of a couple of almost a couple of billion dollars. And we did it on pallets of currency and cash, not just U.S. currency. There were some U.S. dollars, but there were currencies from around the world, literally on pallets wrapped in plastic wrap as a ransom for American hostages, which is, again, a violation of U.S. policies to negotiate with terrorists. The excuse we gave was that in a world court, we were going to have to pay more than we did, and they actually saved us money. That was outside of the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal, which could have included in the nuclear deal the release of those hostages, they didn't. All of our allies in the region said it's a horrible idea, don't do it. The Saudis, the Israelis, every one of our neighbors, any, every one of their neighbors, the Iranian neighbors that were allied with the U.S., we did it anyway. Then to pacify our allies in the region, we armed them with better weapons to fight the Iranians, not if, but when the Iranians used that money to commit acts of terrorism, which John Kerry under oath admitted was probably going to happen, and there was no way that we could stop it. After we normalize relations with the Iranians, after we pay them over a billion dollars, after we allow them to expand their nuclear program, John Kerry makes a trip across Europe encouraging businesses in the EU to begin to do business with the nation of Iran again, saying to our allies in Europe, if you're concerned about doing business with the Iranians because of your business dealings and because of your being allied with the U.S., you don't have to worry about that anymore. Feel free to do business with Iranians now. We actually went out to bolster the economy of Iran. Our Secretary of State. All of this is true. All of it's documented. So you want to look at what happened this week? This is just the culmination of what they've been doing for eight years. Definitely four years with John Kerry. This president's leaving January 20th. He is not taking his foot off the gas pedal, nor does he need to. 
I mean, this is his prerogative. But as the American people, is this the American representation in foreign policy we want? I mean, that's a question all of us should answer. The Iranians have said publicly they're not going to allow the Americans to back out on the nuclear deal. They're already making threats against America that if if President-elect Trump decides the handshake deal is no longer a handshake deal because it's a different administration, they're promising they're not going to let us do that. And the last thing I'll say about the foreign policy of America is in the days after John Kerry, days after Fidel Castro died, John Kerry put out a statement grieving with the Cuban people. I am not a, a hateful person. The only good thing that Fidel Castro did for the Cuban people was die was the best thing he could have done for the Cuban people. He is an oppressive, was an oppressive, evil dictator that enriched himself, his family, and his cronies with the blood, sweat, and tears of the Cuban people. He murdered his own citizens that dared to be against him. And it is impossible for me to believe that the American government went to the lengths that we have to normalize relations with that country and to say such shining, glowing things about an evil dictator like Fidel Castro. But once again, this is the foreign policy of the current administration. Whoever you are, supporting democratic policies and the democratic platform for the economy of the United States is a disagreement that I have, and I think I'm standing on the side of angels with how it hasn't worked for eight years, but it's a discussion that all of us can have. Supporting the nation of Iran and that theocracy, and it's not only supporting its right to exist as it is, in the Iranian constitution, they call for the annihilation of the Zionist state. Their constitution, their focus, their goal as a theocracy run by a religious book is what I mean by a theocracy is to kill and destroy Israel. Not only do we say they have a right to exist, we're going to normalize relations, we're going to give them billions of dollars, and we're going to encourage the world to do business with them. This week, John Kerry says to the Israelis, you can't be both a religious state, and democratic. It's impossible. We're going to sit down with Iran for over a year and cut a deal, give them billions of dollars. We're going to take them saying death to America. We're going to do all of these things and swallow our pride and do, oh, and I forgot to throw in what they did to the United States Navy when they took those sailors off the ship, like I said yesterday, stripped them of their uniforms and showed the world American sailors crying without their uniforms on them, completely against every rule and regulation of taking a prisoner or taking a captive. And John Kerry thanked the Iranians for their treatment of the American Navy. This from a Navy hero, right? And now, he rebukes Israel and says they're a threat to peace in the region. 
if there's anything in my synopsis that is factually incorrect, I'd love to have somebody correct me. You may agree with the policy, but you can't disagree with the facts. So what's left? What the U.S. may be doing in response to this with the next administration, with the next session of Congress, that may be a bright light in part of this. I'll give you the answer to that next. And, of course, coming up in the 8 o'clock hour, we'll talk about President Obama and some protected land in the western United States that's got some governors and some people in the western United States very upset. All of that happening here in the next hour and in the next few moments. Once again, my name is Mike Broomhead. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and this is the Glenn Beck Program. This is... The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. The Glenn Beck Program. All right, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, however you're checking out the program, however you're listening to us and spending part of your day with the Glenn Beck program, thank you for that. Uh, we do appreciate it. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, in for Glenn for my final day of the year. So thank you for, for joining me, social media users. I do appreciate the outreach as always. I'm, I'm blown away always by the comments. Even those that disagree are respectful, and it's a great spirited debate. I appreciate all of it. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Broomhead Show, and my last name is spelled, unfortunately, just like it sounds, Broomhead. Yes, it's my real name. If I was going to make up one of those funny radio names, why in the world would I make up Broomhead? But at Broomhead Show on Twitter, the Mike Broomhead Show fan page on Facebook, or if you're an Instagram user, a bunch of my pictures are up on Instagram, and it's Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram. So thank you for the social media outreach. I'll be you know, responding and trying to correspond during breaks. I do maintain my own account. Nobody does that for me. I do it myself. Um, TheBlaze.com, story from TheBlaze.com. Congress already moving to slash U.N. funding, and it's not stopping there. That may be the solution. The U.N.'s a toothless tiger anyway. When was the last time the U.N. solved any kind of a problem? The issue here is negotiating from a place of power, as everybody knows. And the United States, the, the world leader in the U.N., and yet we have relegated ourselves to a back seat. It should never have done that. The problem with American policies right now is that our enemies don't fear us, but more importantly, our allies don't trust us. You know, when you have a friend and your friend gets in trouble, you back your friend. I'm not talking about a fist fight in a bar. I'm saying when your friend needs something, when your friend is in trouble, when somebody is threatening a friend, when there is something threatening a friend, That's when friends step up and do something. We have decimated the relationships with our allies. Our allies have reached out to other members of the United States government and said, we are beginning to believe it is better to be an enemy of the U.S. than a friend. And it is sad. But if we are going to slash funding for the U.N., if we are going to tell the United Nations, if this is how you're going to behave, it's not about a set of ideals and principles. Ideals and principles are this is how everyone should be treated. They don't do that at all. 
and the nations that are anti-Israel, the anti-Zionist state, as the uh, Iranians would put it, we should step aside. But think about what this policy is telling the Israelis and the rest of the world. It is scary to me. Absolutely scary, the policies of the United States. It's going to change. End of January, there's changes coming. Marco Rubio responded to John Kerry's speech by saying that he's looking forward to working with the Trump administration to restore our respect with Israel and our credibility around the world. And I I think he said it very, very well. Coming up in the next hour, the president uh, moves to protect land in Utah and Nevada, millions of acres of land becoming federally protected land. The governor's very upset that the president is wielding this kind of power, especially at the end of his term. They asked him not to do it. Why the president says he did these things. But most of all, why would a story like this be a headline in the next hour? There's an important reason for it. And because I live in the western United States, I'm going to explain it to you. I hope you'll bear with me. Hope you'll stick around for the next hour of the program. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'm in for Glenn Beck for the rest of this morning. Thanks for making it part of your day. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Phoenix, Arizona, in for Glenn for one more day. Thanks for making us a part of your morning, part of your day, whatever time of day you're listening to us. We appreciate you being with us. This is um, this is going to be an important hour of the show. Last hour, we spent a lot of time talking about what happened with Israel, the UN resolution, our involvement in all of that as a government. Uh, you know, elections have consequences. I'm not begrudging the president his right to do whatever he thinks is right. There's no doubt that we elected Barack Obama twice. And he is going to be the president until his very last day in office. He is entitled to pardon whoever he wants to pardon. He is entitled to do a lot of the things that he says he wants to do. This hour, we're going to talk about him wielding a little bit of that power. I don't agree with what he's doing. I think it's a very important story. But in light of what we talked about last hour, in light of Israel, in light of the U.N. resolution, in light of ISIS and their declaration of war on New Year's Eve, and they're calling for bloodshed in the United States using horrific images and the hypocrisy from the the idiots that are the Islamic State. Um, and I don't feel a need anymore, and I have in the past, to the, to the disclaimer of separating Muslims from radical Islam. I don't have to do that anymore. P- people in America, we, are, we live in a great place. We live in a place where we accept everybody because people from all over the world come here. We've all known Muslim people our whole lives. 
We've known people of different faiths, faiths that we didn't know much about it. We may have been predisposed some opinions based on what we've heard about people. But in the end, we accept people at face value. When you come to me as an individual, as an honest person with who you are, all of those things are accepted by Americans. That's who we are because this is a place from people all over the world have come here to become Americans. It's the great thing about us. So I don't have to give the Islamic State versus Islam um, disclaimer anymore. The Islamic State is a bunch of hypocrites. This hour will go into more detail. But they're using Christmas images, a Christmas tree, Santa Claus, and they're using bloodshed. And they're calling for attacks on New Year's Eve. The federal government, state and local governments, the JTTFs, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces all over the country will be working overtime in overdrive. You want how many more metaphors can I come up with? How many cliches can we get in, squeezed in here in one sentence? They are not going to rest. They will not rest because they realize that we're at war. We've seen what's happened around the world. We saw the Christmas village and the Christmas market, I mean, in Germany. We saw what happened in Paris. And so they will be doing everything they can to thwart threats here in the United States on New Year's Eve. But the hypocrisy of the Islamic State and and organizations like them. Remember Charlie Hebdo? Why did that attack happen? Well, we know because they are an evil bunch of thugs. But they were talking about being disrespected as a religion. That Charlie Hebdo and its cartoons was so disrespectful that in order to restore the honor of their religion, they had to murder people. Ridiculous on its face. But if you are demanding that kind of respect of of the icons of your faith, of the symbols of your faith, how then is it okay for you to be disrespectful of others? Why would you take religious symbols and historical religious relics in Iraq and destroy them? If religious relics are the cornerstone of people's belief, and you want yours respected, how can you be so disrespectful of everyone else's? So this hour we will talk about the Islamic State and the threats they're making on New Year's Eve. Um, Howard Dean, the famous I Have a Scream speech, almost Democratic candidate, former DNC chairman Howard Dean, says that for the last eight years, President Obama has taken the high road. Okay. We'll get to the bottom of that. But the president and the protected lands in the western United States, uh, just to give you a little preview of what's happening, this is hysterical that, well, Orrin Hatch, I believe it was, tweeted out, in Utah, they are, um, they are in Utah very upset that the President of the United States is declaring a segment of their lands as federally protected. And when the White House tweeted out, and it's called Bears Ears, when the White House tweeted out 
that they were protecting this land, they tweeted out a picture of the arches in Utah. And so Orrin Hatch's office said, if you're going to take 1.3 million acres of Utah land, at least use the right photo. This is the arches, not bear ears. It's an important topic about federally protected or federally managed land for so many reasons. And, and I'm going to ask for those of you that don't live in the Western United States to bear with me when we talk about it. It, it does pertain to you. It, it, is, it is something that's pertinent to everybody in the country, but it is something that is everyday life for people that live in the Western United States. And it's a part of the overreach of the federal government. It is one of those things that's archaic in nature and needs to change to a certain degree. And it's something that definitely needs to be discussed. Some of the other headlines that are important this morning. Sprint is bringing back 5,000 jobs into the U.S. And uh, whether and Donald Trump getting credit, maybe taking credit, not necessarily how the the case is with this, but what's more, what is more important to me is we're beginning to see these stories come in about the economy and how I believe that what is a shrinking middle class is going to feel the boost in their economic or in the um, their consumer confidence. I feel for families that make too much money to benefit from federal grants and loans, whether it's for college or for anything else, but they don't make enough money that every time something spikes tuition and college tuition where I am is gone through the roof. And now, you know, the Obamacare premiums through the roof, wealthy people can, will, can and should and will complain when things like this happen because it's unfair. But they can, and in some cases, in most cases, do Absorb the hit because they have the means, they have the money to absorb the hit. The working poor, what's deemed to be the working poor in America, are given grants to offset costs when things like this go up. But isn't it funny that both political parties in every election season, they focus on the middle class. It's always about the shrinking middle class. We're going to help the middle class. We're going to bolster the middle class. And every bad policy that's out there on either side of the aisle, who does it squeeze out? It squeezes out the very people they say they are aiming to help. It's, it's amazing to me how intervention hammers the middle class and why the middle class isn't largely saying, government, just get out of the way. Just knock it off. So in a moment, let's start off the big topic of this hour being this federal land issue. I'll explain what the president did yesterday why people in Nevada and Utah are upset about it, why it should be important to the rest of the country, because it absolutely is something that should be important to the rest of the country. Um, If you're just jumping in to listen to part of the show, my name is Mike Broomhead, and I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I do mornings at KFYI in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, You can find my show at KFYI.com, but you can um, follow me on social media, and that's the way we interact. I'm getting a lot of interaction with people. On Twitter, I am at Broomhead Show. On Instagram, all one word, Mike Broomhead, spelled just like it sounds, or the Mike Broomhead Show fan page on Facebook. I would love to interact with you, hear what you have to say about all of the things that are going on this morning. Good, bad, or indifferent, agree or disagree, it'd be great to talk with you. In a moment, we'll dive into the topic of the federal lands in the western United States, why I think it's a very important story for all of us. We'll be back in a moment. 
Playback program. Triple eight seven two seven back. Mercury. All right, thanks for joining the Glenn Beck program. Mike Broomhead, Phoenix, Arizona, in for Glenn. One more day coming up later on this hour, just after the 8.30 break. We'll talk about ISIS and groups linked to them and their threats for New Year's Eve attacks right here in the United States. What can you do to be prepared? What's the government doing to be prepared? Is it something that we all should be very concerned about? And before we end the hour, Howard Dean says that Barack Obama for the last eight years has taken the high road. I said that with a straight face. So we'll get to that later on in the hour. But right now, federally protected land. This is an issue for me that has bothered me for a long time. I grew up in a beautiful place. I was born in Northeast Ohio, grew up in Southwest Florida. So I call Florida home. No disrespect to Northeast Ohio, but Florida was my home. I grew up in in Southwest Florida, um, near the Everglades, I grew up on, in a beach town called Fort Myers. But um, you know, when, as you go uh, as you go east, uh, the Everglades are just a beautiful place. Uh, you know, the pristine and the, the pristine water and the wildlife, and it is just an unimaginable, beautiful sight to see. I moved twenty two year, almost twenty two years ago, to Phoenix, Arizona. 1995, February of 95, I moved here. Completely different, but just as beautiful. Breathtaking. But living in the Western United States for as long as I have, one of the things that we deal with to a much larger degree than anywhere else is the huge parcels of land that are federally managed and taken over, all in the interest of conservation, We're called the Grand Canyon State. One of the seven wonders of the world right here. You don't think the people in this state have a vested interest in how pristine that must remain? Rarely have I seen patriotism, if that's what you would call it, for where people live. Like Arizona, Texas, we all know if you're from Texas, you're not from Texas. If you aren't born there, you're not from there. You live there, but you're not a Texan. I have no problem with that. I love that kind of state pride. But the Western United States has so much of its land federally managed. And the problem with that is when you have a president with the environmental policies that this one has, it can be damaging. So... President Obama moved to have national monuments called Bear Ears in Utah. He said in a statement that the 1.35 million acre Bears Ears monument, so-called for its distinctive pair of buttes, would protect some of the country's most significant natural, cultural, and archaeological resources, including important ancestral grounds for numerous tribes. A second national monument in Nevada, Gold Butte, preserves 300,000 acres 
on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Here's the quote from the president. Today's actions will help protect the cultural legacy and will ensure that future generations are able to enjoy, appreciate these scenic and historic landscapes. Um, no offense, but I'm pretty sure the people of Utah know how important Bears Ears is. Same with Nevada. Same with Arizona. Here's the dangerous part of this, and I've mentioned this so many times. When you live in a place like I do, with generations of people, this is a no, this is a place, a nomadic place. People come to the, where I live now from all over the country. It, you're finding more and more natives, but they were rare to find people that were natives here. But when you did, and when you met people that were fourth and fifth generation here in this state, by the way, just celebrating its centennial a few years ago, you realize there's no better group of people to be in charge of managing its forests and its beauty and its relics and its scenic scenic, um, monuments. And yet the federal government does it. Lamenting what's called the Rodeo Chetiskai fire, which happened years ago here, but it was one of the most damaging things I'd ever seen. It was my it was my look then before I was ever politically astute or inclined to listen to people talking about how ridiculous it is with the federal regulations on forest management and how the fire crews couldn't fight the fires. And it, it literally scorched the earth in towns. Uh, you can look out on a map in Hebron, Overgard, and other places. And the scorched earth, because crews weren't able to get to the fire because it was against the law to thin the forests, to clear away the fuel that fuels these fires in the underbrush, all because of EPA regulations at the federal level saying that you're going to damage the habitat for the animals. Well, that fire not only destroyed the habitat for the animals, it destroyed the animals. Hundreds of thousands of acres, two fires merging together at the same time that almost wiped out some of the most beautiful towns in northern Arizona. And this is anecdotal evidence because I live here and I I lived through this stuff. But all across the western United States, the federal government is continuing to take over land instead of giving it back to the states. We're not the same country we were 100 years ago, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. Nevada is capable of preserving what needs to be preserved in its state. So is Utah. So is New Mexico. So is Arizona. The forestry industry could rejuvenate the economies of what have been a decimated economy in northern Arizona. Not clear-cutting, none of that. It's all nonsense. The governors of Nevada and Utah asked the president not to do this. He did it anyway. Is it his prerogative? Absolutely. For all of the President Obama supporters out there, he has every right to do what he did. It was against the wishes of the people of that state. I think it's a slap in the face to the people of each individual state to think that you have to do this at the federal level because you're afraid that the people of the state where this beauty resides do not have the love and respect for it themselves to protect it and maintain it. That's it's a slap in the face. Not to mention that this is the 21st century. 
Why does the federal government need to have so much control of state land? Turn the land back over to the states. Remember, the way that this country is is designed, we don't have a government with 50 states. We have 50 states with a government. They believe it's the other way around. And we've allowed that to happen. I know that may seem on its face to be a small issue with just a couple of monuments in the middle of nowhere. I can promise you the policy and the ideology behind it is so much worse. So I'm hoping it changes. I hope that with uh, with the President Trump coming in, maybe he will appoint somebody in uh, in his cabinet positions that will take a different road when it comes to these kinds of things and maybe give some of this land and common sense back to the states. Right after this next break, ISIS making threats using religious icons and religious symbols to make threats about New Year's Eve in this season directly against the United States, calling for an uprising of people to meet out attacks. What should you do to be prepared? What is our government doing to be prepared? All that coming up here in just a few moments. Once again, this is the Glenn Beck Program. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'll be back. Sign up for the newsletter and get all the info you need to know at glennbeck.com. Thanks for being here this morning. Mike Broomhead in for Glenn Beck. Today's my final day in the year of 2016 in for the Glenn Beck program. Thank you again for being a part of the show, for tuning in for at least a part of your day. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, the social media outreach is terrific. And uh, am I, I, I guess this is a rhetorical question, am I being totally insensitive? Am I fueling the fire of terrorism by calling ISIS a an evil terrorist organization, a bunch of religious hypocritical zealots who have hijacked whatever faith that they believe in and turned it into their reason to murder people across the world. <clears throat> am I am I now am I now being used as a recruiting tool for saying that? Um, you'd hear it from the administration. They will not say Islamic terrorism. Okay, don't. The American people do. So does the rest of the world. The Islamic State and groups linked to them call for a New Year's Eve attack using horrific images. Images of Santa being pulled in a sleigh by a reindeer with uh, guns, rifles pointed at Santa and blood being spilled on Santa Claus. With Santa Claus carrying bags of toys and masked men with knives chasing Santa. With uh, what looks to be Islamic soldiers with rifles. And images calling for murder and mayhem on New Year's Eve. Um, Just a quick comment or a quick read of what's here in this story. 
in a series of graphic images posted on encrypted telegram channels seen by the foreign desk. The Nashir Media Foundation, a pro-ISIS media group, urges potential lone wolf attacks in public venues, including cinemas, malls, and even hospitals. The posts, however, make a point to warn Muslims to stay safe away from the New Year's celebrations. So what they've done is they say to fellow Muslims, as if now they give a darn, sorry, um, I almost got a little off track there, forgot I was on the radio, as if they care about other Muslims. The Islamic State has been killing fellow Muslims by the thousands in Syria and Iraq. For them now to send out messages as if they care about Muslims in America or anywhere else, these are people that indiscriminately murder. They've done it on 9-11. They've done it before 9-11. And they continue to this day to do it. These are people bent on mayhem and murder. And the fact that they've hijacked any religion to do it is ridiculous on its face. But they're now telling Muslims, don't go out on New Year's Eve. Don't. Going to be a tax. So what are the United States, what are we doing about it? What, what do you believe is being done? I can tell you with my limited knowledge of the joint terrorism task forces all over the country, which there are many in every city and town in America, they're made up of federal, state, and local law enforcement. They pool intelligence resources. They pool man hours. They pool um, data. They do surveillance on what they believe to be critical targets, dangerous people. They don't always get it right, obviously. San Bernardino, some of the other attacks at Columbus, Ohio, at at the the Ohio State University. People that were on a list that many would say, how did you not see that coming? Well, you know, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. when they look at things and they go back and look at them and they say to themselves, you know, where did we miss this? But I can promise you there is no group of people that take their jobs more seriously than the members of this these task forces from the intelligence gathering community, from those that are tasked with deciphering intelligence information and data. They are working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the thing is, they have to be perfect because when they're not, people get hurt and people die. So as Americans, do we hole up? Do you stay home on New Year's Eve? Do you go to one of the big events wherever they are in your town? Do you go to any of those events? Or do you just stay home and say it's not worth it? If you are even considering staying home, Think about where we are as a nation. Think about how our world was rattled on 9-11 and how terrified we were as a nation, how churches were filled up in the days that followed. There were no airplanes in the skies. Buses were being pulled over by the highway patrol because of reports of people. We, for the first time, well, I shouldn't say for the first time, myself, for the first time, I felt vulnerable. You know, we can kind of tie this in with something we've talked about a little bit this morning, which is Israel, who deals with this on a daily basis. 
the idea that somebody's going to get onto a bus and blow themselves up and everybody on the bus or in a coffee shop or in a nightclub or a restaurant somewhere. It was almost a daily occurrence with the Palestinians in their 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 knife attacks or bomb attacks on Israel. But if you're even thinking I'm it's not worth it. I'm not going out just in case. I'd just rather be, better be safe than sorry. Look how far we've come as a country. All these years and we still feel that vulnerable. And we shouldn't. But there's a big segment of our society that does. I don't think anybody should sit home on New Year's Eve. And at the same time, if you've got kids, I think, okay. I mean, I wouldn't, no one needs to be a hero, I guess. But here is a group, the Islamic State, that was called the JV Squad by this administration. They refused to say Islamic terrorism. They refused to address the true problem. They're saying we have them on the run, which no, no, we don't. And the American people still do not feel safe. That's the biggest issue I have with this, that Americans just don't feel safe. In the next hour, um, I do want to talk about the economy a little bit as there are 5,000 jobs coming back from Sprint or come bringing jobs, repatriating jobs into America. The American economy, the small businesses and big businesses that you and I both are familiar with that push and drive the economy in the towns we live in, that will be happening in the next hour. But before we close out this one, before this hour ends, Howard Dean, and this is another story from theblaze.com, which is a great resource for news. Trust me, I surf a lot of news sites every single day for my job. And The Blaze is one of the most comprehensive, easy to navigate, easy to print out uh, news sites that there is available. And this Blaze story, Howard Dean said Obama has taken the high road for eight years. If you can say it with a straight face, you're a better person than I am. But that's what Howard Dean's comments are. We'll discuss that here in a couple of moments before we close out this hour and once again, if you are a social media user, I am at Broomhead Show on Twitter, at Broomhead Show on Twitter, uh, Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram, and the Mike Broomhead Show fan page on Facebook. You'll see my station ID up there, or my logo of my local show, and my local logo, Mike Broomhead logo, on that show page on Facebook. Back in a moment, we'll talk about um, this story to close out the hour and Howard Dean and what he said about Obama taking the high road. All that coming up here on the Glenn Beck program. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'll be back. Glenn Beck. The fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. The Glenn Beck program. Mercury. This is the Glenn Beck Program. 
Thanks for joining the Glenn Beck Program. Mike Broomhead, Phoenix, Arizona, in for Glenn for the rest of today. I'm done for the year, then for Glenn, and it's always a pleasure and an honor to be on. Uh, thanks to the people on social media. Working on something for next hour. Um, you can't make any promises yet, but I've got a friend who's reached out to. I spoke yesterday. I think I, I mentioned yesterday my um, admiration of Mike Rowe and what he has done to to highlight the the – nobility of the working man, really the kind of highlight that the backbone of what America is, and that's the the working class in America, those jobs that don't seem to be glamorous, but at the same time are what make the engine of American, the American economy and everything else work. And I don't think that anybody's really grasped that and shown it to the American people in the way that is both entertaining um, and also informative like Mike Rowe has. And so um, reached out to him, and I think it's possible if we can make the timing work that I might be able to talk with Mike on the air next hour. And if we can, I'm definitely going to make time to make that happen. If it does, we'll get it tweeted out, social media. You'll know when and if we're going to make that happen. But we're we're working on it right now, or at least I'm, I am behind the scenes. Before we get out of this hour, Howard Dean, and this is from TheBlaze.com. If you want to go to TheBlaze.com, Howard Dean says Obama has taken the high road for the last eight years. Uh, He praised the president and said that he had taken the high road throughout his presidency in an effort to bring the country together. Now, it's not just – I'll be honest with you. It's not just President Obama, and it is really the platform of that party. And I am very redundant. I know that I am, and I apologize to those that are are regular listeners to the Glenn Beck program. I'm very redundant with some things because it fits over and over again. The divisiveness of what's happened in the Democratic Party has become evident to the Democratic Party. The challenger from Ohio that was going after Nancy Pelosi's seat talked about them being a coastal party, that they are both California and New York. They are the Northeast and they are the West Coast of California and everything else in the middle of the country is red. And the reason for it is the elitist attitude. But also they said it's interesting that now the young Democrats in in the Congress and the Senate, the young Democrats are are chastising and criticizing the elders in that party because they have pitted one against the other, they segment their words, not mine. They segment American society. So instead of speaking to the American people, all Americans, whether they're Republican, Democrat, man, woman, black, white, gay, straight, doesn't matter, married or single, faith-based or agnostic or atheist, a set of ideals that they believe are the, the principles that Americans live by. They segment society. I, President Obama has done nothing to bring the country together. Now, the people that there are many people that believe he has done intentionally done just the opposite. I think Barack Obama was and is an idealist. I don't agree with his ideals. I think the plans for what he wants to accomplish may seem very fair to people, but the way he seeks to accomplish that is like it is really. Uh, almost sophomoric, never having to have run a business and and be beholden to the bottom line in any business whatsoever is a big issue. If you own a business, no matter how big or small that business is, you realize that every single day, every single week, and every single month, you've got a nut to crack and nothing else matters. 
Your employees have to get paid first. You've got to pay for your supplies, whatever those supplies are. All of that comes. You pay your rent. You pay everything else before you get anything. And you work and work and work and may not get anything for it because everybody else gets paid first. And then the president says to business owners all across the country, you didn't build that. Remember those? Remember that speech? Remember those words? Remember when he jumps to the conclusion and says a police officer, a cop acted stupidly and he was wrong. And then they had to do that ridiculous beer summit at the White House. It was the most cliched, ridiculous thing I've ever seen with this college professor and this cop and the president and the vice president, all of them in their dress shirts with the sleeves rolled up twice, eating peanuts and drinking a beer. No one wanted to be at that table. The president wanted to be there with the cop. That cop certainly didn't want to be there. Neither did the president or the vice president. But he stuck his foot in his mouth and he had to do something. Eric Holder said when he was when he was the attorney general, he didn't mind being known as an activist attorney general. And that's what he was. Howard Dean says the president acted to bring the country together. I just want one piece of evidence to that being true. One. It's just not the case. It sounds good. It's a great soundbite. Dean said, I think, you know, Obama's taken the high road for eight years and his hope that was to bring the country together. He said, Republicans no interest in bringing the country together. He didn't believe me. I think he probably does now. So, again, it's the Republicans' fault that the president couldn't bring the country together. It's, it, it, it is mind-boggling to me, absolutely mind-boggling. In the next hour, we've got scheduled to talk about the 5,000 jobs Sprint's going to bring back here to the United States. That is a great big topic we'll talk about. And like I said, I'm working on trying to um, – uh, we are going to get a micro on it looks like at 20 minutes after the next hour. We've got confirmation it looks like on that. So we're going to get that tweeted out to everybody. In the next hour, we'll have that conversation with him about jobs in America, the working class – and the people that make this economy drive. I'm looking forward to that conversation with him. My name is Mike Broomhead. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Glenn Beck. Mercury. program mike broomhead phoenix arizona in just a bit longer for glenn before the year end for me before it's done and my last broadcast on the glenn beck show i I appreciate the time as always and thanks for tuning in we do have it confirmed coming up in the next segment of the show which will be at about uh you know 20 after this hour mike rowe will join me the mike rowe he has got a fantastic podcast it's called the way i heard it 
And uh, he is just kind of he's done something that I don't think anybody else has been able to do, even when they have tried. He has been able to take what is the working class American people, really the hardworking backbone of America, not over glorified it, not simplified it, made it entertaining and informative. And it is really he's the only one that's been able to do that. And uh, the way he speaks about the American working class it resonates with me. I grew up a working class. I was an electrician, electrical contractor. So I've always admired what he's done. And I think I mentioned yesterday on the show, if I ever had a chance to speak with him, I'd like to have a conversation with him. And we're going to get a chance. So at 20 minutes after the hour, Mike Rowe will join the show. It was from a Blaze story yesterday, the Blaze.com story, him talking about the American class and how every, the American working class and how we tell people in secondary education to, you know, they've got degrees, the majors in poetry and some other things. Instead of, you know, the $140,000 a year welder, there doesn't seem to be the romance uh, to being called a welder. And I've got to tell you, uh, I think just the opposite growing up that way myself. My life was just that. I admired those. I admired the guys, ladies too. I'm not trying to be sexist. I admired the people in the hard hats. I admired the people with the work boots and the five-gallon buckets of tools. That's been my life. That was my life for a very long time before I switched into this career, which I absolutely love. I The building I'm in in Arizona is being remodeled. Our, our radio stations, our offices are being remodeled. So the work crews are all here. And watching and standing in the hallways and talking with those guys, I still find myself most comfortable in that atmosphere because that's where I've come from. Uh, it, it It doesn't seem like there's a lot of romance in that, but I can tell you that working-class America may not be wealthy. They may never be wealthy, and most of them realize they're never going to become wealthy doing what they're doing, but they're happy. They're happy because they're productive. And I think that's where, politically speaking, where the finally, you know, where this political pendulum swings back and forth. I think part of the reason the pendulum is swung in the direction it has is that there is something in Americanism that Americans don't want to be handed anything. We like the idea of working for what we have. You know that in, in other parts of the world, they still look at America wearing cowboy hats. They still see us as the American cowboy. The romance of the American cowboy is still alive in the sense of you put an honest day's work in for an honest day's pay. It's not about getting wealthy. It's that at the end of the day, you can be proud of the work you've done and every penny you have, you've earned. There's something about that in the American spirit that always makes us persevere. The economy has been horrible for for years now. We have had a slow drag out of the recession slash depression, whatever you want to call it. There seems to be a turning in the minds of the American people now. There seems to be an optimism. And I think a lot of this focus is being put back on them. And really, the last thing I want to say about it politically is there was a story we didn't get to it yesterday about white fear and, and white guilt and what cost Hillary the election and what, you know, racist America did this. And it was not racist. It wasn't white supremacy. It wasn't any of those things. What won this election for Donald Trump was this. He went to the working class Americans, largely Democrat voters, largely union membership in states like Ohio and states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. And he went over and over and over again. And he said to them, we're going to get these factories open again. 
We're going to lower the taxes for your bosses. We're going to lower the regulation for your bosses so they can be incentivized to bring your jobs back here. If they're leaving, we're going to get them to stay. If they're gone, we're going to incentivize them to come back. And the working class doesn't care that the rich are getting richer. The working class doesn't care if their bosses are making more money. What the working class cares about is being able to show up at the factory or at the office or wherever they work every day, put in an honest day's work, and get an honest day's pay. That's it. I mean, it's as simple as that. And that is what won Donald Trump this election, in my opinion. You don't take Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin as a Republican candidate for president without working class Democrats and Republicans believing your message more so than the other person. Just doesn't happen that way. I come from a working class background. I told you I was born in the Midwest. I was born in Northeast Ohio. I wasn't raised there. My home is you know, a town in Florida. I have a cousin that's a contractor in Northeast Ohio. I have a cousin that owns a coffee shop in Chesterland, Ohio. It's called Arabica Coffee House. These are working class people. We grew up together as little kids spending summers together. There's never, they're not going to make movies about any of us. They're not going to do any of those things. They go to work every day. They work hard. And at the end of the day, they're proud of what they've accomplished. That is really the American dream. So uh, with that being said, yesterday I talked with, I talked about, and I talked about my admiration for Mike Rowe and the way he focuses on the working class. I've mentioned um, that I still DVR the episodes of Deadliest Catch, which I'm going to try my best not to even ask him about because I'm sure he's tired of talking about Deadliest Catch. But to show those men who are hard, uh, a lot of times crass, sophomore, juvenile-humored people, but look death in the eye every day on, on, the, uh, on a ship dragging crab out of the ocean, and how it's become one of the most long-lasting and most popular shows on there because of the relationships built, but also because we do cheer for people that go out there and risk everything and come back with a pocket full of money. There is something awesome about watching a young kid work so tirelessly and get his butt chewed out for hours for not doing something right. But by the time it's all over, it's high fives and hugs and a pocket full of money. So we're going to talk with Mike Rowe in a few moments. I hope you can stick around for that. Uh, again, his podcast is called The Way I Heard It. You can catch it online, and it, it really is it's terrific the way he approaches life and the way he looks at who we are as a country. And what he said in this Blaze article, he articulates the way I have always felt and tried to articulate myself, just not done it quite as well. So coming up in a few minutes, Mike Rowe is going to join me. It's a conversation I think it's pretty obvious I've been looking forward to for a long time. So once again, my name is Mike Broomhead. This is the Glenn Beck Program. We'll talk to Mike Rowe in just a moment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. 
Beck program. 888-727-BECK. Hey, thanks for joining the show. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, in one more day for Glenn Beck. And uh, as I mentioned yesterday on the show, I've always had an admiration for the way Mike Rowe handles the working class America, whether it's Dirty Jobs, Deadliest Catch, or his podcast now, The Way I Heard It. He has a knack for bringing forward and, and being entertaining about the working class in America. And when he's asked to speak and you hear interviews, and I read the story in theblaze.com yesterday about Micro's take on why, as he travels the country looking, whether it's dirty jobs or anything else, he sees help wanted signs and what that possibly could mean of why those jobs aren't being filled in America. It's always touched me because if it weren't for the trades, I myself would have fallen through the cracks. I was 18 years old, barely had a high school diploma, wasn't going to go to college, was spinning my wheels doing nothing and fell into being an apprentice electrician, and it changed my life. I was a business owner, and it showed me a path of being able to work with my brain and with my hands and feel a sense of accomplishment, which I think is more important to people a lot of times than the amount of money in a paycheck. So um, I've been waiting for this for quite a long time, and joining me now is Mike Rowe. Mike, it is a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. I'm going to do my level best, Mike, to be as interesting and fascinating as possible. That was quite an intro, and I'm humbled. (laughs) Well, listen, Mike, I have been a fan for a long time, and uh, you know, Glenn and I have talked about you before. I, I've listened to you. I've watched you. Your take on Americanism and the working class and the people that really drive the economy and drive who we are as a country, I think is not only entertaining, it's an interesting look at that. What drove you to do that? Well, I mean, the, the honest answer is a 400-page book. I can't get around to finishing, but the short version is um, I, I grew up with the great good fortune of having really two dads. Um, my father, who was a, was a school teacher, a public school teacher, and my grandfather, who lived next door, who built the house I was born in without a blueprint. These two together uh, showed, rather than told, uh, what, what work actually looked like. My, my dad was typically his de facto apprentice, my grandfather's, and my grandfather a guy with a seventh grade education wound up being a master electrician, carpenter, steam fitter, pipe fitter, architect, mechanic, all of it by the time he was 35. And so I just, I had a front row seat to the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us from the jump. And the reason I wound up doing the shows I ultimately wound up doing was because the thing I admired the most in my granddad, that that, that gene, that chip in the back of his brain that just allowed him to put together a watch or a, or a combustion engine blindfolded, uh, is recessive. I didn't get it, <laughs> and it, to this day is one of uh, my, my, my great uh, disappointments. What I got was a genuine interest and respect for that work, and after 20 years or so of freelancing in television, I finally got a chance to uh, shine a light on guys like my pop. And that's what Dirty Jobs was. That's how it started. But, but honestly, its, its success had as much to do with the underlying themes of the show as it did with my uh, somewhat dogged insistence at the time to do a TV show that, that didn't rely on a second take. Um, we... we we shot as honestly as we could. We didn't rehearse. We didn't hire actors or writers. We didn't pre-produce. We didn't scout. We showed up 
with a small crew, and we became flies on the wall. And I did my best to keep up, as anybody would do on their first day of work. And what came out the other end was a fairly authentic tribute to that thing we call labor. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's fascinating. My grandfather was my biggest influence. He was an auto mechanic, and I remember handing him tools as he fixed when he was retired. He fixed the the neighbors' cars in our neighborhood, and I remember being fascinated at how he was able to take something that didn't work, know what the problem was, and fix it. He was like MacGyver before there was MacGyver, and I think that's what led me down the path I was myself. But the take you you give this, and it's interesting, um, I I promised myself I wouldn't bring up Deadliest Catch, but I'm going to anyway. I got to meet Josh Harris here in Arizona, and the way you show the hard-nosed life that those people live, where they are able to be both hard but at the same time lovable, you cheer for them when they're successful, it is a, you shed a light on that in a way that makes us want to watch those people not change who they are, but be immensely successful. You're talking about a word that, that doesn't get used as much as it used to because it's almost become um, uh, stereotypical of something, but it's, it's character. Right. You know, you're, you're watching character on the yes. screen, not characters, not you know, imitations or derivative takes on some pre-existing archetype or whatever the experts would categorize it as, but you're seeing character. You mentioned Josh. You know, I've, I've known Josh for years. Um, I, I knew his dad. I wrote uh, a eulogy uh, for Phil when he died, and it crashed my website. And it was one of the many uh, occasions that made me realize the themes in Dirty Jobs, the themes in Deadliest Catch, in a lot of ways were the themes the headlines caught up with in 2008, 2009. And that's when, you know, Phil died in 2008. And it, it right. was, there was such an overwhelming uh, outpouring of, of sympathy and relatability. I think, I can't speak for the network, but I think a lot of people in charge of that show finally realized um, that we weren't watching a show about men catching uh, crabs in the Bering Sea. We were watching, especially with the case of the Cornelia Marie, which was, you know, Jake and Phil's and Josh's boat. Uh, we were watching a family, uh, literally a nuclear family. We were watching a father trying to deal with the future of his kids. We were watching a man try and deal with the fate of his crew. And we were watching all of it with this backdrop and this is probably the most important element of the Bering Sea, which in a world of contrived, um, focus grouped nonsense is still one of the great uh, characters in nonfiction television that can't be scripted. So when you pushed all that together, you had something a bit more relevant than a crab pot going over the side of the boat empty and coming up full. You had basic uh, relationships, hunter, gatherer, eat what you kill. You know, I was listening uh, a few minutes ago before I hopped on, and you were, you were really talking about that, that same basic thing with respect to risk. And, look, I would never suggest that <laughs> the world would be better if it were more dangerous, but I would suggest that we've tried so hard and, and we've succeeded in so many ways to eliminate risk from life. We right. do it, you know, with insurance and actuarials and all these different things. And it's all very well intended. But the truth is, 
there was a time in the country when people got paid based on their willingness to assume a level of risk. And we don't see that much anymore. But that dynamic is alive and well uh, in the shows we're talking about. You know, um, I've got about a minute left in the segment, and I want to talk to you about the way I heard it, this, this project of yours on the podcast. The description is a series of short mysteries from the curious mind with a short attention span. Tell us about the podcast and why. The podcast is just another attempt to shine a light on, in this case, history. Look, I, I, the, the world's full of stories and full of examples that I think are both entertaining and instructive. Paul Harvey in my estimation, was the master of combining mystery with history and biography. And he did such a great job with the rest of the story in, in, in cleverly exposing people to tales and biographies that they would probably otherwise never listen to. The way I heard it is my attempt to keep that um, tradition alive. And we tested it six months ago. I just wanted to see if anybody cared. And I was putting up one a week you know, six-minute biographies, and we've reached uh, over 40 million. So apparently that's wow. good, and people called and said, <laughs> let's do some more, and I said, great, so I am. That's awesome. Mike, I, I can't thank you enough. I know you did this on short notice, and uh, it really is a pleasure to speak with you. I have always been a fan, and as one of those working-class people, I thank you for shedding a light on, on who we are, and it really is an honor. Hey, look, I, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've been a big fan of uh, Glenn's audience for many years. It's always great to talk to them. And uh, Happy New Year to you and yours. You too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. There he is. He is the Mike Rowe, and the, the podcast is called The Way I Heard It. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate it. We've got just a couple of seconds left here in this segment. Uh, there is the voice right there of the working man and why uh, I've been such a fan for a time. So um, other side, we will talk about the Russian threat, jobs coming back to America, and uh, Sprint bringing back 5,000, all that right around the corner. I'm Mike Broomhead. This is the Glenn Beck Program. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. All right, keeping in with the theme of the American economy and driving this ship that we have forward and trying to do the best we can as a nation, uh, one of the, um, just talking with Mike Rowe, which we're going to try to get turned around as quickly as we can, He, uh, a great guest, and, and thank you again to, to Mike Rowe. Um, the podcast, again, is called The Way I Heard It, and it's, it's, it's so interesting. If you want to go and take a listen to the same thing you're going to see on the, on the screen from him, you can hear it on his podcast. Um, American people just want to work. We do. We want to be paid a fair day's wage. Everybody wants to make more money. I don't know of anybody who thinks they're overpaid. Look around you. Every athlete that's making millions has an agent that wants to get them millions more. Everybody that's working for 20 bucks an hour wants 22. That's kind of human nature. We'd like to you know, advance our station in life. But more than that, I think, and especially as we get a little bit older and you start thinking about legacy, and that's where I am in my life. 
I've told the story. It's interesting that Mike talked about his grandfather and his father being his hero. My grandfather was my hero. My grandfather was John Wayne to me. And I remember as a little boy sitting on his lap and watching TV as a re, as a little boy. And I have three grandsons now. And the oldest was less than a year old. And I was sitting in a recliner watching TV with him on my lap. And I got emotional and I don't. My grandchildren are the one thing that can make me cry and tear up at the drop of a hat. It's, it's, it's embarrassing to a fault. My family laughs at me at how these boys can make me cry. But it is that legacy part of it. As I sat there looking at this little boy and it overcame me that I've become the lap. My grandfather died 40 years ago. I can tell you stories about him like they were yesterday. Can I have that kind of an influence on these little boys? But then you you move that out into a bigger picture about who we are as a country because whether or not I have that kind of influence on those three little boys specifically, we will have an influence on those those boys, that five-year-old, and every five-year-old in this country. When 15 short years from now, they will either be in the workforce, in the college classroom, or in the military. And what kind of a country are we going to hand them in 15 years? Now, I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 in June of next year. You know as well as I do, when you get to be our age, 15 years is not a long time. So now... The last eight years of policy, forget anger, forget all of that stuff. Just look at where we are and where we need to be. Are we going to continue as a country to stand on opposite sides of the street? In this case, it's rich versus poor and throw rocks at each other. Or are we going to say, what moves us forward? What moves me forward? You're you're in the construction business like I was. You're one of those people in a pickup truck with a buck, five-gallon bucket of tools going to work every day. Don't you want to know that for the next 10 years you're going to have that job? That if the boss you're working for isn't paying you what your value is, that there are options for you to go to another company that's got a benefit package and a little bit more security, and that's only available because the economy is thriving and there's construction going on around you? If you've got that college degree and you're working in a field that you've wanted to work in for a long time, don't you want to know that those jobs are going to be available to you? And if you need to go somewhere else, there's options for you as well. Does it matter to you that the reason that your job is secure or the reason that there are expanses um, in jobs is the fact that your boss has got less regulation and a better chance to keep more of his or her profits because taxes are lower? Does it matter to you that your boss's 401k or your boss's um, retirement account just got bigger or they buy a brand new car? If it does, you're thinking way too much about your boss. Options and opportunity are what matter. And those are created by entrepreneurs. Those are created by people that are willing to risk it all for the dream of whatever it is for them. Sprint is bringing 5,000 jobs back here through an agreement that they made. But if you look at what happened in Indiana with the air conditioning manufacturing, 
with a was it a Taiwanese company making a fifty billion dollar investment here, with other companies saying they're coming back, and others saying that they're going to expand here instead of expanding somewhere else. I realize, and I'm not. I'm being. I'm as honest as I can be with you. I am. I was not a Trump supporter. He was not my first choice. I voted for Donald Trump because I thought he was a much better option than Hillary Clinton. I have been pleasantly, and not even surprised, I've just been, I have been very happy with the way Donald Trump has handled most of this transition from my perspective. I want what's best for America. I want the promises to be kept. I want the economy to move forward. I want Obamacare repealed and replaced, not because I don't like Barack Obama, but because it is bad for America. The idea of health insurance being available to Americans is a good idea. The way this plan was put into place is horrible for the economy of America. It's going to drag us down. It's going to put a lot of people out of business, and it's going to put a lot of people in an economic shambles. So it needs to be fixed for the good of the country. But when Sprint says they're bringing 5,000 jobs back, OneWeb's going to create 3,000 jobs here. Um, Wherever you live, it's not just about a job. It's about a career. It's about an opportunity. It's about feeling, you know, a, a sense of accomplishment in what it is that you've done. But how in the world can we do that if we're upset because the rich are getting richer and, and we got we have to stop. I worked around wealthy people my whole life. I worked on a resort island for a long time as a manager of a small electrical contracting company. I worked around wealthy people all the time. And you know what they taught me? They taught me that they were no different than I am. They worried about money. They were concerned about their families. They wanted people to be successful. They cheered me on and hoping that someday I'd own my own business when I told them that was my dream. A lot of them gave me sound advice. The bosses I worked for that had money that I made a lot of money for in turn taught me a trade and taught me how to do things. And when I made mistakes, they paid for them. When I learned to estimate jobs and I estimated wrong and we did the job anyway and it didn't make either as much money as it should have or no money at all, That didn't come out of my pocket. So having animosity towards somebody that has something that I don't, it doesn't do me any good. And right now we're seeing that is seems to be the sentiment of the American people. That's how Donald Trump won over those swing states. You can blame the Russians. You can blame all that stuff. You can blame James Comey. You can blame all the people you want to. But in the end, it was the voters that voted in all of those states we've mentioned. Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin that voted for Barack Obama twice. Those same voters, when they were faced with a choice between the Trump policies and the Hillary Clinton policies, chose the economic policies of Donald Trump. It's not racist. It wasn't fear-mongering. It was, you want your job? We're going to fight to make sure your job stays here. Simple. In the most simplistic form. 
The Russians are threatening retaliation if the U.S. imposes sanctions. There was a tweet that just went out that MSNBC got a leak from the White House saying that the White House is going to announce covert action against Russia. How do you announce covert action? Isn't there an oxymoron there? You're announcing a sneak attack. Okay. And also, uh, remember the name Dylan Roof, uh, the man that committed those horrible murders in South Carolina, um, where he went into intentionally into a historically black church and murdered people. Um, uh, what he has done in his trial. So we're going to wrap things up for the year, for me anyway, uh, with a couple of those things here in just a couple of moments. Again, social media users, uh, I am at Broomhead Show on Twitter, Mike Broomhead on Instagram, and the Mike Broomhead Show fan page on Facebook. I'd love to keep corresponding with you, even though this will be my last day here for Glenn. It's been a lot of fun. My name's Mike Broomhead. This is the Glenn Beck Program. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. All right, a few minutes left before I close it out for the year. And, you know, as much as I'd like to do the cornball year in review and kind of thing, I'm not going to do that. I I will say this, that um, it's going to be an interesting 2017. That's for sure. That uh, what we've seen in this past year has been divisive. We understand when there are changes as drastic as we've seen, there's going to be division. There's going to be disagreement. But we also got to understand that's just the way life is. One of the good things in my life is I grew up with people that didn't agree with me all the time. I've changed my own mind. I, don't, I disagree with myself half the time. I contradict myself. But I've got people that I truly admire and truly care about that are as far to the left as I've ever been to the right. They're good people. They're honorable people. They work hard. They just completely disagree with me on fiscal military, and social issues. Now, I know it's odd to think that they would still be close with you, but they are. If there was one message I can send in 2017 to the people that listen to my show in Phoenix or anywhere else is if we stop talking to politicians, we start talking with each other, we all together realize we should have a healthy suspicion of the people we send to represent us in Washington or in local government. And if we understand that neither party has the corner on patriotism or crazy, there's plenty of crazy to go around on both sides of the aisle. There's plenty of patriotism to go around on both sides of the aisle. We figure out a way to work together. We're going to be better off. But this is what's funny. Just a little compare and contrast to close things out for today. The White House spokespeople said, saying that the United States had anything to do with this U.N. resolution against Israel and the settlements. They called it a distraction from, you know, moving forward and what needs to be done for America and for the world. Yet. The president of the United States in the White House is going to announce covert actions against Russia. It's not covert 
Mr. President, if you announce it. That's like telling your wife about her surprise birthday party. It doesn't make sense, and it's not a surprise. But wouldn't it be just as easy to say, Donald Trump won. Donald Trump's the president. Um, it's a distraction. Now, if the Russians are hacking American entities like the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, um, if they're doing that, that definitely should be investigated. There's no doubt about that. But when you're saying the motive is the election, as if somehow the Russians hacked into the voting machines, which are nothing more than tabulators, they do nothing but count. They're not even connected to the Internet. Oh, but Mike, they have software on the computer and the software can be manipulated. Okay. The Russians did that. The Democratic Party never even insinuated that. The results are the results. Donald Trump won the election in the Electoral College by a larger number than anybody thought possible. Changing or disbanding the Electoral College, um, stopping this way, you know, getting rid of the Electoral College for the future, doing anything you can in the courts or otherwise, Jill Stein, and now the president leaving a legacy of doubt by saying we're going we're gonna to punish the Russians. We've got some kind of sanctions against the Russians. Well, the Russians are saying they're going to retaliate. If there's any kind of sanctions imposed, they'll retaliate. To what degree they can, I don't know. I don't trust Vladimir Putin. I think Vladimir Putin is a KGB agent that wants to bring back the glory days of the Soviet Union. I think he learned a lesson that Mikhail Gorbachev taught him, which was the economy of Russia is what caused their demise. Their economy couldn't keep up with our economy when it came to the arms race, and it ruined the Soviet Union. It decimated it, and that's why it fell apart. So he is trying to rebuild the Russian economy by taking over the places he are, the ports, the port cities, his foot in the oil-rich Middle East. Go look at a map where Syria is and Iraq is in reference to Iran and to Israel. The oil-rich parts of the Middle East to have his feet in there, his fingers in that pie. Rejuvenate and bolster the economy of Russia, rebuild the Soviet Union, so they are once again a superpower. If you don't think that former KGB agent is doing that, you're absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. All right, it looks like I am out of time. We are out of time. I hope you have a great and happy new year. My name is Mike Broomhead in Phoenix, Arizona. I hope you'll stay in touch via social media. Happy new year, everyone. God bless. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.